Hi, and welcome back to the Institute Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast, and this is episode 145. And today, my guest is Mike Ormsby. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Hey, Lauren. Good, good, good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I, well, actually, this is third time lucky, isn't it? We've all sorts of interesting things has, uh, has happened, but we made, made this happen. Uh, third time lucky. So we have actually managed to do this before. Um, you and I have known each other for quite a while. We've met a number of times at conferences and so on. But we did a podcast, um, and I'm shocked to say that it was episode 28 in 2014, December 2014. And in that one, we talked about training and nutrition to maintain muscle in endurance athletes. Um, remains, to, remains a fascinating and pretty much on point episode. It's one of those topics that is really interesting. You know, you don't always pair endurance uh, exercise with trying to keep muscle on. Um, so that was right. the time we got into that topic on this podcast. Now, I have actually talked about things like protein and endurance specifically with, with an expert, um, but um, I didn't sort of look at the whole gamut of training and nutrition. So we're, we're not going to talk about that specifically today. We're going to talk more about, well, we'll probably have a few what we call red herrings where we'll, we'll go down all sorts of rabbit holes of knowledge, um, which will be a bit of fun, I suspect. But we're going to revolve around this concept of uh, nighttime feeding um, as a strategy, um, the timing, um, and all sorts of things that go with that as it relates to training and uh, maybe a little bit about health and so on. So we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But... Give us a bit of an overview as to who you are and what you've been up to um, um, all the way back to, to the beginning, I guess. Sure. Uh, my, my path was pretty straightforward through, you know, the academic uh, towers all around our um, country and kind of bouncing around and finishing um, my PhD at East Carolina University in human bioenergetics uh, back in 2008. Um, out of there, took a position as a, a faculty member at a small teaching college called Skidmore College. Um, where I was Sierra's able to college. Yeah, yeah, okay. yep. yeah, that's right. Yeah, so Paul it was a big influence on me because I had him as a student when I was a, an undergraduate. He was my professor, um, and then I worked with him ten years later. Uh, as a colleague and so uh, he remains a good friend and, and good collaborator of course yeah because he was a professional tennis player wasn't he because i was thinking he was he's older than you i'm sure <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 he was actually my first professor for an exercise physiology class and nutrition class uh, awesome. ever yeah uh which is which is really cool full circle so um we teamed up there again and then uh after that i took the job at florida state university where i am now so that was in 2010 i've been here for 10 years um you can see virtually behind me part of my lab which is at the institute of sports sciences and medicine we call it the issm institute of sports sciences and medicine um, we have uh, a great team of um, graduate undergraduate researchers visiting scholars postdoctoral fellows that come through our facility um, and help us with all the different studies that we're working on and we're obviously in the area of human performance as our big umbrella that's kind of how we couch everything um, but underneath there, we have a couple of different focuses and, and sort of themes to what we're doing. Um, a, a major one is, is protein intake in general and, and sort of intervention studies, be it resistance training or endurance training, and how that affects more or less body composition and general health um, and performance. Uh, 
Um, our second theme is specifically with pre-sleep feeding. Uh, we have a, a lot of things going on in that area. We've been working extensively in that area since 2010 and sort of how that came about is an interesting story we can get into. Um, and the last area is more on along the lines of nutritional supplementation, um, different types of ingredients that might help somebody, uh, be it isolated as one ingredient or in like a multi-ingredient performance supplement, which is um, actually quite a hard thing to study because there are so many limitations to looking at a product that's already on the market. Um, and so many ingredients that it's hard to make sense of what's going on. So we've tried it a number of times where we got a paper in review right now, but it's, it gets hammered by reviewers because it's, it's a tough topic, but it's also practical because that's what people are taking and we want to mm. see how those things work. Um, so we do a lot of work with, um, general athletes, like, like physically active people who are, who are sort of either weekend warriors or even people who are athletes, but not elite. Um, we do a little bit with elite with some of our work with our university and the collegiate athletes. Um, and then we also do a lot of work with, uh, clinical populations, obesity, uh, breast cancer survivors, HIV, um, Parkinson's MS, but we try to use a sports nutrition model to, to, um, try to go after influencing positively the lives of people with these chronic or clinical conditions. So um, it's all sports nutrition, it's all human performance, but we have basically three branches to what we do uh, here at, at our university. That's awesome. I mean, it, it, it is fair to say, I've said this quite a few times, especially of late where, <clears throat> you know, although sport science, sport and exercise science, sports physiology, exercise physiology, is in itself fairly new. It's been around for a little while, but sports nutrition is the one that's really starting to, you know, ramp up and take off big style. Um, and I like what you just said there because uh, I actually don't like the word sports nutrition so much because I feel that that phrase sports nutrition tends to suggest that, that this type of work is only something that we should use with an athlete. And in your mind that conjures up, you know, somebody sprints down a track or, you know, uh, football player uh, or soccer player, depending on what side of the Atlantic we're on, or <laughs> you know, um, but or rugby player, American football player, whatever. You know, th that's what we think. But 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 like you say, just someone who's trying to be physically active, you know, the that sort of impact that certain dietary strategies can have on ultimately for what is for them is still an investment in their time and effort and they still have a chosen outcome whether it's just to look better you know in their underwear or you know swimming trunks for the summer holiday or you know it's an older person trying to get their functionality back get their life back um or indeed even aspects of recovery from illness and an injury you know i think one thing we're certainly going to get from this whole horrible pandemic um the upside will be is is without doubt and I'm, we see this already is an increased interest in physical activity partly of course because they're starting to associate you know healthier healthier fitter leaner people with potentially more resistant profiles to this uh to this virus sure. um but also people uh, you know lockdown or whatever they've got a bit more time on their hands so of course they're discovering things like running and cycling and triathlon and uh, body weight exercises and all for those that are lucky to have access to gym equipment, you know, training. So, you know, nutrition is, it shouldn't be the missing link in that because we all eat and drink. We all eat and drink. So why not be a bit more 
sort of strategic about right. that, which is why I like the term performance nutrition, because our nutrition is all about influencing performance, whether it's that, you know, the athlete or a ballet dancer or your, your executive who's training themselves to, you know, be more robust um, on that. Well, if this is, if this is even going to happen in the future in their, you know, world travel, uh, you know, going right. from one time zone to another to deliver an important board meeting, physical fitness can make a difference in that scenario, you know? So um, anyway, look, I'm obviously biased. You're biased about this stuff. We love this stuff, but I, what I, you, with you, I know we could talk about lots of different things. So I, what I want to do is just focus us a little bit into this concept of, of not just feeding as in nutrition, you know, intake through food and or supplements, but specifically uh, a very specific area of an area which we get into periodically on this podcast, which is sort of strategic eating, whether it's periodization and there's all sorts of different areas of that. But what we haven't done is gone to a specific section of the day, if you like, time of day, which is this nighttime window. We have delved into uh, pre-sleep protein intake with Luke Van Loon, for example, um, who you share research interests with and have published work to complement all of that work that, that we had talked about. But it's more than just that, although I do want to cover that area again because again that was a few years ago that i i had spoken to him about that and i know that you can bring us up to speed but what let's just dial back then into why you got into this because there's a lot of things you can get into maybe some areas of research could be easier to do mike <laughs> you've definitely chosen a challenge <laughs> um so what what got you into this area of nighttime feeding right i think an inherent interest of, of mine um well, one, I was, I was always eating at night, you know, coming up and just was hungry at that time. Um, and that was sort of when I was finishing grad school and, and also my life as an athlete, uh, a competitive athlete, um, where I played, you know, ice hockey all, all through college and, and all through high school and college. And, you know, we would eat, we would eat a lot of different times because sometimes that's all the, you were hungry and you just finished a practice and that's your time to recover and eat. Um, part of it was a routine, part of it was hunger. Um, but I certainly looked around at uh, any athlete that I saw or the bodybuilders that I was friends with or worked with, and they were very lean, but they still eat, they still were eating late at night. And that sort of uh, coincided with a lot of the, the TV talking heads that were telling us to stop eating, don't eat, you know, establish a cutoff time. Um, and, and inherently that kind of also made sense that if you're going to try to limit calories, then maybe you should stop eating at a certain time point, but just logically and, and, and practically, I'd look around and say, is it really a problem to eat at night? And is it, is it eating in general or is it what you eat, um, right before bed? So that was the spark of, of the interest. And I started to look at the literature base to see if there's anything that was, this was, you know, 10 years ago, um, it, was there anything published that that was pointing me in the direction of maybe a cutoff time is is good? So as any scientist would do, you sort of dive into what's been done to figure out what you want to do in the future. And there were just some huge gaps in in the knowledge base. And so at 2010, we started writing our first grants uh, in this area to to dive deeper into that pre sleep feeding um, and start answering the questions: Is it is it a time of day? Is it 
the, the macronutrient um, proportions that make a difference at that time. Um, and even to today, it's, it's really exploded. At the beginning of this, it was all uh, Luke's lab and our lab that were, were in this from you know, 2010 until maybe 16 or 17. And now many different labs are getting involved. I see many papers coming out from all over the world. And that's exciting to me because um, it just pushes this area further and lets us be more specific about designing our, our, next, uh, our next studies and approaches, which would be fun to talk about today. Yeah. And the reason why I think this is interesting is because there's certainly over the years been some sort of myth, mythology that you've sort of suggested there that, you know, there's this inherent belief that eating a lot at night is a problem. Now, of course, it might be, but it might not be. It just depends, doesn't it? And I think, I think one issue with this topic is, is that oftentimes we're focused more on the immediate event, i.e. eating that that evening meal rather than looking at the bigger picture of how does that fit into the 24 hour period? And that goes backwards and forwards, doesn't it? Um, You know, like, like, and we'll get into this a lot, but that, that feeding event before sleep isn't necessarily the end of the day, really, because you've still got a period of sleep where the body's still doing stuff. And that is also potentially a preparatory period before a, you know, a, a, an event that might occur first thing in the morning. Um, right. And there's plenty of events that start early doors, you know, like um, especially ultra endurance events, you know, where they need to make the most of, of daylight um, or heat issues. Um, and of course, you know, with athletes uh, who travel all over the world, they might start their day or the night before in one time zone and end up in a completely different time zone. So, you know, the timing that you eat, you know, the day before or in a certain time zone can impact what happens the next day. So I could see my head is already starting to unravel <laughs> with complexities and issues. But I guess the first thing we should probably get into is maybe the, you know, the area that I guess where there has been more attention, where eating as a strategy to impact body composition which is a very popular area particularly if we're not just thinking about elite athletes or competitive athletes we are talking about body composition you know metabolic health and so on um um, i thought we would tackle it from the perspective of those different sort of you know foci as opposed to uh trying to get too generalized in every area and then tie it all in at the end so um when we look at a feeding Maybe you could define what you mean by feeding um, and nighttime. Well, there's different times of day for that, um, yeah. ironically. Uh, and also in the context of, of weight management, body composition, et cetera, you know, what, what are, how do you want to introduce that? Yeah, I think that's probably one of our biggest questions is how do we define it? And that's something we have to do in almost every paper in, in this area is what are we calling what are we calling it? And if you look back at all the literature based on this prior to our work in the area, um, they were generally feeding big meals. And it was, it was not what we call a pre-sleep feeding, which is literally just a, in most cases, just like a protein shake before bed. Um, these are large meals that people were having um, dinner, let's say, later in the evening, 10, 11 p.m., and they would just compare that same major dinner meal. We're talking 600, 800 calorie meals. 
um, earlier in the day, like 5 p.m. or in the morning, like 11 a.m. And that was some of the original work. And that's actually why people thought it was bad, is that the original work was like 1993 uh, was probably the biggest seminal paper on that, which is Roman's group. And they ended up showing that the same exact meal, roughly 600 calories, mixed macronutrient profile, um, just didn't quite elicit the same thermic effect of food in the late evening. So you just didn't expend as much as many calories to, to use it. And then theoretically saying, okay, then you probably store those and now you're going to gain weight and body composition will be off, et cetera. So that was just basically a late dinner. We decided to look at it and define it as uh, two hours after your last meal, so mixed meal, and, and roughly 30 minutes before getting into bed. And all of our studies have done that. That's a pretty consistent way to do it. Loops Group does a lot of that as well. And some of the newer studies coming out of different areas are also using that same model. Two hours after dinner, so if you eat dinner at 6 or 7 p.m., let's say, and then you have uh, at least two hours later, and then you just drink a, in our case, many of these studies are drinking a, a shake, which we can also talk about. Most of this is, is supplemental protein, uh, sometimes a carb protein mix, very few meals. We've done a little bit of it and very few whole food protein options. We've done, there's a little bit of work in milk and a little bit of work with cottage cheese, but mostly you're talking about a protein shake. And and in the pre-sleep area, that's usually a casein drink, but that's kind of just because it's been done that way. Not necessarily because it's the best thing to do. It's just how it's been done because we thought it was a slow release protein. We, it is a slow release protein, but when you lay supine, that may change the digestibility of the protein. So that's a whole other area. Um, so yeah, yeah that's, that's a, our definition. Interesting. No, no, because I think that's great. I think often people don't talk about that. You know, the reason why a certain strategy become gets in vogue um, is because an assumption is made in usually a journalist or, or whoever their translational process is. That's what the scientists have been doing. Therefore that's what we must do. No, th th they did that because that you had to reduce it down to one component in order to be able to study it. <laughs> it's right. Yeah. Otherwise what did what in your multi-protein <laughs> mixture? You know, um, I always find that um, fascinating, but I guess, you know, we, we want to ask ourselves why, I mean, why even bother doing this? You know, what, what is the actual motivation behind that? And I guess for me, there are two angles that influence the way in which you answer that question. Of course, if all we're going to do is say weight loss, then yeah, we go down the whole energy balance and you, you know, you've got to get your calories right and so on and so forth. But the minute you talk about body composition, it gets a lot more complicated whereby it isn't just about energy intake, the, the actual quality, the, the sort of macronutrient mix, if you like, can play um, a significant role in that. And perhaps that's the area that, that you want to take us down. Sure. Uh, yeah, it does get so complicated. I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, not only is it complicated to design these, but it's also complicated to carry them out because a lot, you have to be monitoring people overnight. Um, which can be quite invasive. And, it, and if you control things too much, then it's not real world. If you don't control it enough, then you don't control it enough. And so there can be other complicating factors. And body composition in general is of interest to most people, at least at some point in their lives, uh, as well as general health. And that's the approach that we've taken, whereas Luke has tackled every area with muscle protein synthesis and tracers 
um, and also some applied outcomes and strength and such over time. Our group has much more focused on metabolic changes, some hormone profile changes, some performance outcome changes, and certainly um, some body composition changes. The trouble is a lot of the inference from our work and others is that the studies aren't generally long enough to um, really look at a, a significant change in body composition. We're inferring a change from an increase in metabolic rate or an increase in MPS, which doesn't necessarily change into body composition change. So we've sort of taken the, uh, a different spin on that, which is if we show no difference in eating at night versus not eating at night, then it provides an option for people to consume a protein shake before bed or a protein source of food before bed and not uh, gain fat and not have a problem. And so the way we designed our original studies was really the first question was we were looking in, in younger, uh, obese or overweight women. And we said, okay, in an acute stance, if you have a, a whey, a casein, a carbohydrate or a non-caloric placebo right before bed, what does that do to the next morning measures of metabolism was basically the biggest outcome. And essentially nothing happened. It didn't change much. There were a couple of nuanced things that, um, are interesting for a stats uh, symbol, but not necessarily for a real outcome. Um, and then we took those same women for four weeks straight and had them consume that same thing before bed over that entire period of time. And it turned out that again, we didn't see much. There were some trends and it looked like the proteins we gave tended to increase metabolism a little bit, or even in four weeks, sort of reduce body fat a little bit. Um, but it's really hard because in my in our world, if you see a significant change, then you have to also say, is the change more than the error of the machine <laughs> that you get? And so we had some very small differences that to me showed things that were probably trending in the right direction, but four weeks wasn't long enough and they weren't big enough changes to be significant, uh, especially over the error of the machine. In that case, we were using a BOD pod and sometimes a DEXA in those original studies. Um, and that was the, the start of it. But the coolest part about the original work was that body composition was not harmed and may have been improved with either whey or casein, but not with carbohydrate and not with uh, not eating. And so the basic question was, if you eat or if you don't eat, right? And if you eat, it seemed to do some positive things to morning metabolism. But we missed the whole nighttime window. So you, you ate right at night, but we didn't see you again until the next morning. So it was still elevated like eight hours later, the, the, the resting metabolic rate, but we don't know what happened while you were sleeping. And because of that gap, that pushed us in a new direction where we wanted to then monitor what was going on while people were sleeping. And so we developed a series of studies after that that led to not only uh, obese um, individuals, but we did this in active people, athletes, men, women. And we started to use um, a technique called microdialysis, which I'm not sure if people have talked about on, on your podcast before, but microdialysis is a, it's a fairly well-known concept, but it's not used all that often. And you use a tiny little, um, tiny little probe and you basically put it into your belly fat is where we tend to put it. So you, you pull up a piece of uh, a, you know, a skin fold and you pierce it with a, a tiny needle and then you thread a, a, a semi-permeable membrane underneath the skin. And then we can perfuse a saline solution into the skin. 
and it goes in, it, it goes uh, between the cells, and then it comes back out an outlet tube. And so what we get back out is the same saline solution that we put in, plus whatever's coming out of the fat cells. And so we measure glycerol as an indicator of lipolysis to see is, is anything happening to the adipocyte in terms of uh, mobilizing um, fat. And so we, we look at glycerol, not uh, free fatty acids, because um, it's a little more stable. You know, the free fatty acids can, can kind of disperse and be used by other areas, but, but glycerol can't get back into the fat cell. Um, because it lacks glycerol kinase. And mm. so it, in that sense, we use that as our stable marker. Um, we also have to measure blood flow, and there's some ways we do that. Um, but it has given us the opportunity to put these probes in and see what is happening all night. And not only, not only the next morning, but while they're actually sleeping. And in, an, in our hands, there has been no change in lipolysis, no change in fat oxidation, um, so no negative outcomes to eating 30 minutes before getting into bed. Um, and that's really our biggest thing. My grad students uh, often finish those studies and they've been sleeping in a lab for a year and, and they say, I can't believe nothing happened. And then my response is, okay, I understand that. But what's good is people have an option and we know it's not going to make them fat with this, with this protocol. Um, and so that was, that has been a really big influence on um, the body of literature is that it opens up a time to eat that mm. is pro that is not harmful uh, if and this is a big if it's about 150 to 200 calories and it's a protein dominant source um, that is the big caveat if you hear like chronobiology and researchers that look at um, how the circadian rhythm affects nutrients in many different ways typically it's a negative outcome because in my opinion, they're using very large mixed meals. We're not doing that. We're using a protein dominant small calorie load and it serves a couple of purposes. One, it, it won't be bad. It could be positive in that it, uh, Luke has shown it as well. Over time, it tended to lead to a little more increase in muscle protein synthesis and that actually led to changes in um, improving lean body mass and decreasing body fat when people are also resistance training. Um, and lastly, and probably the most important is that it, it gave an opportunity to get 24 hour protein intake up to a level that they probably should have had. And so in our eyes, it's just another protein feeding opportunity. It might help with repair. It might help with growth. It won't hurt you. Uh, and so for all of those reasons, we still believe and recommend this to the active people and the athletes that we do work with. It's great because too often we come up with strategies that, you know, on appearance almost looks like there's only one time that you can do this and you get induced into some sort of state of guilt as a consumer, uh, you know, as the, as the client, as the patient, if you haven't done that and you're like, oh, I'm eating too late. You know, I, I remember when I was um, in a more normal practice setting with non-athlete clients, you know, you would see people who they, they're working hard. They've got to travel. They just don't have the opportunity uh, to eat at certain times of day that, you know, that we see people talking about as being the best time to eat or some Victorian idea that, you know, dinner or supper or whatever word you like to use has to be eaten at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. or whatever. Some people need and or want to eat at a different time of day. And of course, personal preference is an important factor here. Um, we, we know that yeah. 
a really important feature of um, of what defines a successful, um, if you like, weight loss intervention. We won't get into body composition yet, but 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 what makes it successful is compliance. It's just the ability of that person to actually do it. And you know, we know that someone who's wolfing down a snack early evening whilst they're traveling home on the train or whatever because they fear eating too late can then be um you know uh jeopardized by the fact that you know they're sitting in front of the television or whatever you know late in the evening and they're tapping their fingers going i'm still hungry or i want to eat and their urge to eat might be for other reasons like boredom anxiety stress especially now with all this virus thing you know there's stuff going on boredom um so knowing having that knowledge yeah. that you don't have to right is a real biggie when it comes to you use the phrase practical you know being able to convince someone to do what we want them to do has to be perceived as practical as well it doesn't have to be just a physiologically sensible thing to do it's got to be intellectually yeah. sensible right yeah so so along those same lines before we got into this i think it was in 2004 the there was a very interesting study that sort of gets at all of that. And this particular one was giving dinner. And then in some of the people, they allowed them to have a cereal snack before bed. And they did this over a period of time. And the group that was allowed to have a cereal snack, so it was uh, um, also had milk on it. So it was a mixed macronutrient, but it was small calories, like 150 calories. That group ended up having more weight loss and a better body composition after the course of the study. Now, I think they didn't describe it all that well in terms of what what was happening. They had a, they had more calories in their in their total intake over the over the course of the time, but they also improved their body composition. Um, and so, what the authors suggest, and I think we sort of can infer from that, is that the the group who did not get to eat later ate more at the dinner sitting mm. and so it's possible that just that overfeeding or just over consuming was a, a problem whereas the other group said okay i don't have to get second and third helpings at my dinner i have a chance to eat later i know it's coming it's there i'm in the study to to be able to eat that later and they just ate a little bit less at dinner so it was never a massive meal at one point so um, that led us to think about all kinds of supplied outcomes for this. And, and for an athlete, uh, you know, outside of what I described, which is a very controlled setting, we've done some work with uh, ultra endurance athletes. And these in the ultra um, world, and this was a triathlon, so it's, it's called the Ultraman. Uh, it's an incredible three day event. They basically swim uh, a 10K and then they ride their bike for an ex a long period of time, uh, and they finish late at night on a Friday. They wake up Saturday, ride their bike all day, and they finish Saturday night, and then the, on Sunday they, ride, they run a double marathon. When you finish late at night, and you've only had little bits of snacky foods or whatever you can manage to do on those things, you better eat when you finish your exercise, because you have to do it again the next day. And so I often get tell that story in that, Sometimes it's not just do you want to or not. Sometimes it's absolutely required mm. to get an athlete to eat before going to bed um, in order to fuel the next day. Because too often we think in, in the research world as one event. You know, I can do a wind gate. I can do sprints till you drop. I can do different protocols. But for an athlete, 
typically you're training every day. So you need to re keep recovering each time. And so I think it could be an advantage in that sense as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I want to come, I want to come to that because that's actually the area that I find most interesting when it comes to this as a strategy rather than just being practical. It is actually a planned strategy of, of great value. But if we come back to body composition and, you know, the, the sort of the mythology of it's bad to eat late at night, which of course, mm -hmm. you know, w w one argument for that, that myth was, oh, you know, your body can't digest when you're asleep. And we now know that that isn't strictly true. The, um, you know, there are perhaps slight changes in the way in which we digest foods, but then again, we can't overgeneralize because it depends what food we were ingesting. Um, and yes, certain kinds of foods, very, if we use very basic phraseology, like very, very heavy, dense meals, eaten greasy meals um, late at night, you know, you then lie flat. Yes, you might start to bring on things like you know, gastric esophageal reflux disease and various other things. So, so I sure. think it is fair to say that what you eat absolutely matters, which you've already mentioned earlier that, um, that, uh, that, that can play a role. Absolutely. But, you know, just if we flip this the other way and go, well, okay, we, we've got people are coming up with arguments why they shouldn't eat late at night. But if we present it from the perspective of the arguments why they should eat at night, perhaps, um, as an angle, you know, um, and by that, I mean, maybe rather than the, the thinking backwards, but the thinking forward perspective, which is something we'll definitely come to when we talk about athletes um, competing the next day. But for body composition, you know, what is the sort of the forward focused impact of eating later at night and does does quality matter or is it just eat anything, um, you know, that you're, you're focused on? Yeah. So the, the only data that we have to show that body composition might be improved while someone's training heavily is the Snyder's paper, which came out of Luke's lab. And that was a 12 week protocol um, where they did show fantastic improvements, but they were having, you know, a pre-sleep protein dominant shake. So it's a, powdered protein they mixed with water and they drank that up um, and they did that over a course of time and if you did that every night you had improvements the big difference there was that the group who had the improvements had a better daily protein intake higher pro daily protein intake and so they were criticized in that paper because they said it's not that they ate it before bed it's simply that they had more protein in their day which led to the improvements and Luke's group has defended that and said, well, that's, that's fine. Like the, that, the goal was to say, could you have protein at bed and did it help? The answer was yes. Did it improve their total daily intake? Yes. So it can be a strategy. It is a strategy, but it certainly looks like two things need to happen for it to be most beneficial on body composition um, and, and performance. So one of those is that it, it looks like it needs to be protein dominant. And it also looks like it works best if you're exercising somewhere in the hours before your pre-sleep protein. Um, that's something we can sort of dive into in a minute, but that seems to be where the next line of research will start to go. That as well as looking at other types of protein. So look, casein is the dominant one in the literature. Um, whey has a little bit of traction. There's three or four studies now. Our groups I think the only one that's compared them directly. Um, and now plant-based proteins are making a rise. And so people are starting to look at uh, how plant-based proteins are. We actually have a, a paper in review 
right now um, that we hope we'll, we'll get out there this summer um, that, that, that compare plant-based proteins to uh, whey proteins before, before sleep in a recovery model. Um, so there's, there's quite a lot of, uh, of quality issues we don't know about, but it certainly looks like it's a protein dominant food that helps with body composition or won't hurt it. Um, and we just don't have enough information to say anything else works. Mm -hmm. And these are powders. There's really only like two or three studies that looked at whole food options before bed at this point. We've done one on cottage cheese. Uh, Tipton's group did one with milk. Um, and then there's the, the cereal study that I mentioned earlier. So there's, there's not a lot there with whole foods. No, but it's great because it is, you know, humans being humans. Um, you know, th there are certain times a day that people tend to snack. And one of them is in the evening. Um, you know, it doesn't matter who you talk to. It is, you know, a, a point of weakness. And I know that whether it was um, just regular people, um, you know, who, who would have a snack attack, you know, to the point that, that they would literally contemplate, you know, 11 p.m. at night, they'd be looking at their watch and going, do you know what, I'm just going to have to drive to the petrol station the gas station and go get a snack because that is how powerful that urge can be whereas you could have your sort of chocolate you know low sugar-free low sugar whatever chocolate protein or you know some protein powder and cottage cheese or whatever but you know it it, it, it gives you the hit and the fix but it is it is not yeah. going to be a problem right right and i think you, you you mentioned it just because i i think the you said it's a a, a point of weakness and i think that is the way we're ingrained to think about this. Yeah. I don't think we need to think about it as no. a point of weakness. It can be just a part of your life that you mm -hmm. can work in. Now I get it. not everybody likes a protein shake and not everybody likes a casein protein shake. Um, certainly there's taste preferences and things to how those work. Um, and so I think the option for whole foods needs to be explored more for protein dominant foods, you know, like eggs, for example, or things that yeah. people might be able to cook up in the evening quickly and easily. Um, however, I think that the options are now there. I mean, there's a billion flavors you can pick from, from many protein powders that will probably work. They just haven't all been studied, but I think we're to the point where there's enough data to say, okay, I don't care if it's whatever flavor it should probably do the same thing, at least in an applied sense, um, for, yeah. for curing a hunger fix and getting some practical positive outcomes. Even if the only one is you've increased your total daily protein intake. So just, you mentioned daily, and I think it's just worth just quickly catching this in this bag before we move on to the next one. And, you know, we still do need to think about what you've eaten that day, one way or the other. And absolutely, I hear the argument that, you know, we don't need to worry about overeating a little bit, the protein component, it's going to be pretty hard for that to become a problem as such. But when we're thinking about daily energy intake and you know thinking about how many calories we're we're consuming is there anything you know relevant there as it relates to your daily calorie intake and that nighttime feeding i know you sort of inferred this already but um is it is it a consideration or is it only in certain scenarios perhaps where that might be a consideration yeah it's probably more individual and scenario to scenario in our hands if we overfeed but it's a little minimal you know 150 200 calories it doesn't do anything mm. um when it's a protein dominant source so so i don't think that's a, a massive concern if it's a major mixed big meal 
and you're just adding calories, then certainly that could be a problem uh, for some people, depending on did they exercise, did they not, what's their caloric expenditure, what's their medication. You know, there's so many things that can influence that. Um, but in terms of the, the total intake, I think the the literature still would say, or I still would have to believe that it's your total intake first, and then you can go to these nuanced areas like pre-sleep feeding. But why, but why not take advantage of that opportunity? So for example, if you have a day where you just happen to miss a shake or you don't bring it with you or you just don't want it and you get to the end of the day and you're like, you know what, I probably could, should get a little bit more in, then you could use that as a time when you're like, all right, let me just eat a little more protein. I can probably get my total daily protein intake up a little bit. Um, and, and that way you, you might hit the, the, the goals you're sort of after for, for whatever program you're on. Um, and particularly with, with older individuals, we've done some of this work in older folks who don't like to eat big meals, their appetite's sort of down. And now we have a, a strategy, a specific time to have something protein dominant to try to get them to get closer to the goals that we've set for them in terms of one calorie intake, but two protein intake too. Yeah, that, that's great. And I, you know, I, the reason why I'm spending a bit of time on this is because people worry about it. And the, the thing is that, you know, it, it, you may or may not have some element of control throughout the day, but by the end of the day, it's the end of the day. You know, you haven't got a whole lot of time to start debating whether or not, you know, um, you can or cannot have that snack because in reality, it's, it's actually not a problem. There is, without doubt, a degree of uh, sort of metabolic grace, if you like, that allows you to get away with, with some of these things because metabolism is is a little bit more flexible and does adjust one way or the other. I guess maybe we frequently focus on these things in very narrow time windows, like, you know, the hour before and after training or, you know, the day, but not necessarily 24 hours. Or more importantly, how about the week, the month, the year? You know, how things average out over a period yeah. of time. You know, we don't reproduce every day in exactly the same way, do we? Right. And, I, you know, I think you bring up a... a a really interesting point. And I don't know if you want to jump into that now or, hmm. or later, but that timing of your exercise in yeah. relation to the timing of your feeding is not a new concept. That's been around forever, right? But the, the, the pre-sleep feeding literature is starting to show a very consistent pattern. And that is that the, you sort of see in the literature base that the benefits to next day performance, next day, uh, recovery, um, even perhaps body composition over time are there when the exercise is done in the evening and the pre-sleep is done shortly after. Where you don't see it consistently is if the exercise program in the study is done in the morning and then you have pre-sleep feeding you know, hours later, that is now tending to show no difference or no benefit. Um, and so we are now thinking uh, along the lines of that the ex the time of exercise needs to be closer to the time of pre-sleep feeding, which really just makes it like a post-workout or close to a post-workout window. Mm. Uh, but you take advantage of that sleep period. Um, and so nothing has directly compared that yet. We're in the process of trying to do some of uh, those studies now, but COVID sort of interrupted a lot of this, but the, um, the, the pattern is there. You know, that if you look study after study, there are very few exceptions, but most of the time you're seeing if you work out later in the evening and you include some type of pre-sleep, the, the benefits are, 
are greater than if you work out in the morning. Great. So, you know, look, we, the, 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 there's some really interesting perspectives there backed up by some science. Of course, I, I hear you. We need to, we still need more studies. We still need to, to learn more, but it's looking very promising. And uh, from what we know so far, there, there seems little need to have concern, which is great. Um, from the perspective of weight management, body composition, um, you know, that's, that's what we've just been talking about. What about things like health? So yeah, of course, you know, weight management, et cetera, has an impact on, on health. Um, but things like metabolic health and, you know, people like talking about, you know, sort of avoiding diabetes or insulin resistance or, or whatever, and some other parameters, you know, what, 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 is there anything there that, that is in this sort of the territory of nighttime feeding that you know of? Yeah, well, I think the biggest concern that we've found was when in one of our original studies uh, back in like 2012, 13, when we were collecting data, and this was a group who was who were non-athletes. Okay, so they were your general pop individuals. They were women. They were um, overweight to obese, and when they had anything pre-sleep, whey, casein, carbohydrate, uh, they tended to show. Um, some unfavorable changes to glucose homeostasis and uh, insulin sensitivity were sort of trending in the wrong direction uh, in everybody who had anything pre-sleep. So that was a concern and practically a very important thing to consider, particularly if some of these individuals eventually would develop diabetes or pre-diabetes. Um, the coolest part about this is though, that was acute where we saw those changes go in the wrong direction. Once we did this for four weeks straight and implemented an exercise program. Okay. So that's a big point. All of those changes went away, nothing negative at all. Once they began exercising and we did this for just four weeks that we saw nothing in their hormone profile, nothing in the glucose response, nothing in the insulin response that was problematic. After four weeks of pre-sleep feeding, when they also did an exercise program. So for us, it just shows the power of exercise and that in all of these things, you really need to be exercising uh, <laughs> in every case. Um, but we, that's the only thing we've ever seen was a sedentary group of um, overweight and obese women. And once they exercised, it all went away. You know, that's what I love about this is, you know, because people, general population people, you know, they start freaking out about some of these things. And you know what, just to get some exercise. <laughs> exercise really is medicine in so many different ways and of course you know it is it is fairly easy to look at human beings through our evolutionary history and go the argument is overwhelmingly in favor that we were pretty active we're pretty lazy nowadays relatively even if we are exercising we're still pretty lazy we're not carrying water or you know our um our hunting you know uh, you know, whatever we've hunted, we haven't dragged it back to the cave, you know, and, and then we've had to skin it and or bring us to slightly more modern times, you know, uh, uh, clean clothes in that very arduous way in which you used to do and all that stuff. And then, you know, building and laboring and all those sorts of things. The truly 21st century uh, sedentary individual is, uh, yeah, it, it's not some, yeah, you, you, the problem is you're not, you're not exercising. But well, luckily, for those of us working in sport and exercise nutrition, we tend to be with more active individuals, but it is an interesting point there. 
yeah, that's the, that's the only negative that we've seen. And we've done a lot of these now over time. Um, I, there's not, not another case that I've seen in our hands with, again, we're talking small calories, less than 200 calories yeah. and a protein dominant, nothing wrong. There's plenty of literature to show big meals can be problematic. You know, there's a really good research on all that. Um, but we're not talking about that. We're not talking about a late dinner. We're talking about a protein snack, basically. Yeah. Uh, and that's a, a different case. But, you know, that is what it is. That's our biggest criticism is people will read our stuff and lump it into the other work. And it's Now, that's a really important thing. point you make, Mike, because the way people translate evidence and apply it broadly to everything without contextualizing it to you know, the, the, the types of people we're talking about, as we just discussed, there's a big difference between a sedentary person and an active person. And we can talk about differences between active people. In fact, we will do in a minute. But that is a big point. And what people do is they go and look at the literature, the evidence, which is done on vast numbers of, you know, sedentary people that helps inform the clinical research, you know, because, you know, the, the real pandemics out there are the diabetes and the you know, the, the cancers and the, um, you know, all that stuff that is being um, associated strongly with things like lack of physical exercise. Yes, diet is an issue, but, but, but when we're looking at the strategies that we should or shouldn't use with our clients, with our athletes, we need to be mindful of, well, what is the information we're using to inform our practice, our decision-making? And uh, if we are talking about physically active people, we've we, we got to make sure we're not cross-contaminating the evidence. You know, um, if, 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 if it is for sedentary sort of diabetic people, uh, as it relates to nighttime feeding, the pros and cons, we cannot translate that directly to our active people. We just, we just can't. Um, and that's right. where we have a problem, isn't it? Because this stuff's relatively new that you're talking about. Right. Yeah. It's funny. Um, even doing it for 10 years now, it's still new. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Well, um, yeah, you'll be busy for some time. <laughs> you'll be busy for some time. So look, I, I, you know, look, the area that, um, I know my audience are going to be particularly interested in is going to be the more performance orientated focus okay. of this, which is an area that I think is super interesting. Having myself worked with a lot of different kinds of athletes that have that challenge of time of day as i said at the beginning you know it might just be travel time zone issues with traveling athletes whether they're individuals or team sport athletes uh I, it takes me back to two years ago when i was the team nutritionist for a national team at the uh you know the the, the soccer world cup uh a muslim team um and um there were hydration issues as well where nighttime feeding was an opportunity to hydrate as well and i know that's an area that you've talked about in some of your, your papers that you've written as well as a sort of a catch all strategy. It isn't just about yeah. protein or, or whatever there's, you know, it's a, we eat food uh, and that yeah. food, those meals contain various things. And I guess the real big one, which many of the athletes or people who are coaches or nutritionists or sports scientists working with those athletes that have to start first thing in the morning, you've got issues like, I'm just not hungry. <laughs> I'm not hungry. Or I can't get it because it's a practical issue. It isn't there. Um, so tell us a bit more about nighttime feeding as a strategy. And I use the word strategy. Um, it's not just a, it's just something you can get away with. It is something that you absolutely want to be considering for your performance related um, 
Yeah. Um, sorry to so think. there's a couple of things to consider there. And I think the first one is that we've talked extensively now about some performance things in terms of like strength and, and muscle mass, but that's sometimes not related to, that's more related to maybe bodybuilding or mm. some other area than like um, athletes, like, like soccer or football, like you said. And I think that it, our interests also stemmed in, in terms of that morning endurance, because that's typically where we were seeing the, the early races. And so um, we wanted to look at what, if you could eat something. So two, things here before I leave the bodybuilding thing there are a lot of bodybuilders who are purposefully wake up and eat in the middle of the night at, you know in order to have more protein so can you just have something right before bed and and offset the need to get up and does that extra sleep help those are questions we don't know but it's certainly a practical issue to sort of get into for people interested in that area for runners that's where we started we were working with uh some of the FSU uh, women's track and field team at the time, um, we decided to give something they had access to. So it was a, a chocolate milk um, drink. And we compared that to a carbohydrate placebo. And we had them take it before uh, they went to bed. And then in the next morning, we had them come in and do some metabolic testing at uh, three different levels just for like five minutes to see the fuel use that might be different in the morning between having those things late at night and nothing in the morning. They came essentially fasted after, you know, six to seven hours of sleep. Um, and we looked at 55, 65, 75% of VO2 max just to see how the fuel utilization changed. And then we had them do a 10 K time trial on a treadmill facing a wall, no, <laughs> no, uh, stimulation of any sort. You know, they can't see how they, they can't see their, their distance or anything for pacing. Um, and we wanted to see if that would help with performance. Um, in our hands, it actually uh, showed some changes in metabolism, where if they had the, the, the chocolate milk before bed, they ended up having an increase in carbohydrate metabolism at 55, 65, and 75% of VO2 max. Theoretically, that could translate into better performance if you can oxidize more carbohydrate and go faster for a short duration race like that. Um, but it didn't in our hands. Uh, what the carb use was different, but the performance was not. So that's, I think, uh, probably the first one that actually used athletes in a performance setting. Some limitations on that one is that it was, uh, probably under cap underdosed. We gave 180 calorie drink, 30 grams of carbohydrate, 12 grams of protein. That was just what came in the drink probably far too few calories, too few carbs, too few protein to, to actually make a difference. And so we would love to redo that study with a much bigger dose to see what happened. Um, so that's the first one that we ran in a, in a real context of, of performance. Since that time for performance, like you're talking about, there's been a number of studies that have come out. Um, some of them looked at soccer or football and they had uh, matches and they did recovery over time. That was, um, who did that one? I think that was, let's see. I think that was the um, Abbott group. And that was, um, uh, who was the lead on that? Clifford, Tom Clifford's group. So they, had, they do quite a bit of this stuff now as well. They've done a few. But they saw um, performance improvements in terms of reaction strength index, uh, counter movement jump when they had a soccer match and then they took pre-sleep 
um, uh, protein before casein before before bed. So that's another real applied outcome that can be substantial and something that could be um, beneficial for athletes, you know, true athletes. And they did those tests the next morning. Um, and a big dose of protein, you're talking about 40 grams um, in some of these cases is what people are taking in, in the different studies. Again, they did a soccer match at night. They gave something pre-sleep and the performance improved the next day uh, where in our hands, we didn't exercise at night. We gave a pre-sleep drink. We didn't see improvement and poor improvements the next day. So it is a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, our thought is that we didn't calorie dose. We didn't properly give enough calories. And then maybe we need more carbohydrates for this type of activity. So the study we just finished, we actually have it in review now, um, was to use a modified starch that was a slow drip, those UCAN super starch drinks. Mm -hmm. We've done a bunch of work on that in our lab in different scenarios. But I got to thinking that maybe that slow release carbohydrate all night might be the best way to not have any issues with body comp, to not have any issues with glucose control, and to improve morning performance. And so uh, we teamed up with some collaborators from uh, Skidmore College that I was talking about before, a different uh, investigator group there, Steve Ives and his group. And they, um, we, we, we merged together our ideas on this and gave a, a dose of you can supercharge before sleep and wanted to see how that affected performance in women the next morning. Again, we saw metabolic changes, but no change in actual performance. Um, and so again, we just don't know because there's so much time, like you're talking seven, eight hours between eating and performance. Maybe we need a bigger dose and can we handle it? Can we digest it? Does it mess you up with the GI upset? We don't know, but in the dosing strategies we gave, which were basically recommended on the bottle, it did not improve morning performance, but we're still increasing carb oxidation, which again should translate to a faster, short distance racing. Uh, we just haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, as we're talking about this, it makes me think about, you know, the, the sleep period, which of course is a fast. That's not a new concept because we have the term breakfast to break your, your fast, of course, the next day. Um, but rather than, you know, the name of our, our evening meal being, you know, dinner or supper where you're coming from, I'm going to coin a new term, which is um, prep fast. <laughs> Prepare for your fast. So you've got prep fast followed by breakfast. <laughs> there you go. I like it. It was better with an English accent. But the, <laughs> the, uh, I think, it, you know, it is, it is important because you do need to think about what you're doing and why you're doing it and what are the implications of what you're doing rather than, you know, the, the meal I eat tonight basically just finishes up today and tomorrow is a whole nother day. Well, it is another day, except that what you do tonight might affect what happens tomorrow. Um, and that's what's so fascinating about this. And we don't have much information, like you say, um, but the practical side of this is, uh, is significant. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think that there's a lot more, that, so much more that needs to be done because endurance athletes tend to wake up very early for those races and again i mean so i had a long stint of time where i was an endurance athlete um you would wake up before a race to eat a certain thing at like ridiculous hours three in the morning to get ready for 6 a.m race or whatever it is but if you could sleep through that window because you did something before sleep 
that would make a big difference. I think for psychologically and a, a bunch of other things, we just haven't found the right combination yet. That's going to do that. So we are working on it, but there's going to be some time before we figure that out. I, that superstarch idea I thought was really neat. It just hasn't panned out yet. Well, you know, keep trying, Mike. <laughs> keep at it. But I know you look, you've mentioned sleep because of course sleep is in itself a hugely uh, important component of, of our day. And it's a recovery strategy in, in many different ways. And actually we could almost go back to the pre-feeding uh, period, uh, sorry, the pre-sleeping feeding period as also a strategy potentially to impact sleep itself. Is, is that something that you're familiar with? Yes. Uh, we've had to track it over the year. Our first studies, we didn't do anything with it. And then we started getting comments like, well, did, was sleep changed? And that made us think, oh, we better be tracking this. Mm-hmm. We started with questionnaires and just, you know, asking them, how many hours did you sleep? Was the sleep, you know, what was your sleep quality on a, a visual analog scale? And that sufficed for a while. And then we teamed up and got some uh, donated uh, fatigue science sleep watches to use. And we, we use those in a lot of different studies now to actually track it, to see uh, wake periods, sleep latency, and just get a little more data from those. In our hands, we haven't seen a difference. And we actually had to do a lot of this pilot work because some of our studies we control so much they sleep in our lab and some of them they go home and sleep which makes a big difference we thought but in terms of what we are able to capture with the sleep watches uh there were no differences statistically or hopefully meaningfully in those in those outcomes but how could there not be like you're sleeping on an air mattress in my lab or you're at home in your bed um, the other thing is many people don't sleep alone. And so that disrupts sleep. And much of the sleep research is riddled with problems, at least in my mind, because they take in these one-off settings when you're sleeping in a well-controlled environment by yourself. And then you have you in a real setting, someone's kicking you and rolling around and it's, it changes uh, the outcome. So we are aware of it. We are paying attention to it. Um, you know, we're not feeding spicy foods. We haven't had any cases uh, reported to us of GI upset, heartburn, or anything. But practically, if you drink 12, 16, 18 ounces of fluid before bed, you might have to wake up more to urinate, which is something that is a problem. Um, we haven't captured that in our info, but practically, it's probably an issue. You know, and as we get older, you know, it's probably more of an issue. Of what do we have to think about? Speak yourself, but, uh, man. <laughs> <laughs> what are these things we need to think through um, to make something relevant and useful for somebody? Yeah, it, I, look, it sounds to me like the, it, it's obviously an area that needs considerable more time and research in particular, but it is a particularly interesting period of time that seems to have potentially profound impacts on people but you know it's the it depends scenario and i guess also uh, a couple of areas i wanted to get into with this um because research tends to sort of bag everyone into means and averages and and so on what sort of you know inter and intra individual variability have you seen in in the research is this something that seems to be common amongst all of us or is it still very much an individualized scenario that we gonna have to just test on a you know a one-to-one research basis like what do you think about that in terms of the sleep outcomes yeah well no just generally like do you like body composition Uh like you know is there a lot of variability that you're seeing um 
you know, or is or not? I mean, what are your what are your observations? Yeah, so body composition again, there's not a ton of data on long-term studies looking at this. And the, the best examples was Luke's Snyder study. Um, I think with anything, you're going to have quite a bit of variability in your responses, no doubt. But it, it, in not only our pre-sleep protein studies, but a lot of our protein work over a long period of time, we see benefits from a higher protein intake mm. in general. And that's pretty consistent with not a ton of variability. Where you get a huge variability is the outcomes for like inflammatory markers in a recovery study. I mean, that's almost impossible to tease out. Um, how damaging an exercise protocol is to someone is, is variable. So if we do the same damaging protocol and you aren't damaged at all, but I can't walk, that's a different beast on how we're going to respond uh, to nutrient intake too. Um, so variability is dependent on the, on the, on the measurement you're making on what objective um, I'd say fairly consistently, I'd say consistently because I, I recommend it is that people who try this strategy of a small dose protein centric uh, drink or, or even meal at this point, uh, it might help. It won't hurt and it'll help um, improve your total protein intake for the day which is often not as good as we think, even for people who track it fairly well. Um, sometimes that's not really where we need it to be. Is there anything interesting from your perspective or you feel for the audience's perspective on maybe from a more mechanistic perspective about the concept of protein feeding at night relative to consuming it at other parts of the day? Is there some some it's not just a question of you can and it's a useful strategy to top up you know what you might be missing throughout the day call it pragmatic purposes or, or whatever but is there some particular aspect there which i guess maybe is what luke was showing more with his work or in older populations i'm thinking also um like with lee breen's work you know showing the uh you know, our ability to um, make use of a certain quantity of, of protein varies from age, for example. Is there, is there anything there that mm -hmm. you think is worth adding into this conversation? A lot of the same concepts apply to this period as well. Um, probably the, the biggest thing to remember for the audience is that uh, mostly work from Luke's lab has started to look at dosing strategies. We still don't know the optimal dose, but we do know that 30 is better than 20 and 40 is better than 30 at that period. Mm. Um, they see improvements in muscle protein synthesis with 40 consistently, but not always with the lower doses. And the thought is that the, almost every other study looks at it over a shorter window of time than the sleeping window. And so you need a larger dose to still be influencing things later on. Um, and so between the, the hours of time before you might need to use it, the casein drink itself, eight, perhaps aging in general, it looks like the, the dose you're looking for pre-sleep is about 40 grams of protein. Brilliant. Well, look, we could keep going forever. The problem is, is that um, we've already been speaking for an hour and 20 odd minutes. It's amazing. And uh, I guess the last, but just before I have you sort of sum up and give us a practical sort of approach to this, just so people can actually try this, uh, from an, uh, you know, you know, sort of an evidence-based approach to this. Um, uh, the last thing I, I just wanted to question was gender differences. I know that you've seen or looked at gender, you know, females 
in particular, which of course is, I mean, you've chosen some difficult areas to research, of course, because this isn't easy. <laughs> but but is it, you know, is is gender relevant or or the age, the age of that gender, you know, or menstruation or sexual development or whatever? Is there anything there that you think is relevant to this? Yeah, I, I, those things probably come into play. Um, I would say the good thing is the dosing that's being recommended as high as it is at 40 grams should, should cover the age discrepancies mm. and definitely covers any sex discrepancies that at least at this point in my understanding of this topic. Um, I don't think there's anything else that we need to look at. Well, that's not true. There's plenty else to look at in the area of, of age and things, but, um, younger people are responding older people tend to respond a little bit less favorably or just not as robustly, which is probably more of that uh, um, just anabolic resistance in general. Mm -hmm. So again, we don't have the right dose now. We know that 40 seems to work, but we don't know if more is better than that. Um, the actual athlete studies that we've run have been in women. So we still need to do that work in men and see if there's a difference. I can't imagine why there wouldn't be, but we still need to run it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I guess in five years' time, we'll have this follow-up conversation again, Mike, and you'll answer. <laughs> you'll know the answer. Um, look, yeah. okay, great. So maybe can you just give us a quick sum up then um, about this concept of nighttime feeding and and yeah. um, and give us a sort of a uh, an example of what that might look like in in you know some active uh, people. Sure. So. You know, in all the areas we've talked about, general pop, uh, strength athletes, and endurance athletes. So there's probably take homes for each one. And in sort of our general pop area, it looks like it might help and it won't hurt. Um, and so, again, what we're talking about is 30 minutes before bed, 150 to 200 calories of a protein dominant food. Look, hopefully, 40 grams is what you're aiming for. Um, the strength power research, you know, body composition, sort of bodybuilder type work. Um, looks again like uh, there are data showing that it increases um, strength and power and body composition is improved. Um, that might be driven by just more protein in the day, but use it as a time point of the day just to meet your daily needs. Again, it will probably help and it won't hurt. In our hands, there's no differences in lipolysis. You won't gain fat. You won't have a problem with the dosing that we use and the, and the macronutrient structure of it. Um, and in the endurance literature, it's even more limited. Um, we've shown improvements in carbohydrate metabolism, but no change in actual 10K performance and running on a treadmill. So, and also no changes in um, subjective feelings of recovery is uh, one other little area that we've explored. So those are the, the three areas. Again, I think sort of the, the biggest take-homes. And I think in general, it's a good idea. It's something to, to, mm. to add in. You don't have to be afraid. You can eat when you're hungry. I would make it specific foods. Um, we still need a lot of information on how long. Maybe we just need to be doing it longer. Uh, but in general, I use it as a strategy because the evidence shows it's not going to hurt me um, and it might help. The, the biggest driving factor in the next five years of work is going to be when do you time your exercise? That's going to be a critical player. And then what types of foods can we do? Whole foods. And then also what do we think about plant-based proteins? Because those are rising and we don't have a lot of information. I think hopefully our study gets in now and we'll have the first data coming out in that, in that area. Brilliant. 
I mean, I'm excited. I, I can see years ahead of topics to get into. This is going to be, <laughs> this is going to be great. Um, Mike, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been a, a fascinating conversation once again to have with you. I do recommend. I appreciate the invitation. Oh, no, it's been great. I always like talking to you anyway. And uh, the uh, previous podcast we did, I say previous, five years ago, um, still <laughs> to be listened to because um, we got in some other areas which I think are still pretty much on point. Um, if people want to follow you and your work and your research and social media uh, meltdowns or whatever uh, you might have, um, what is the best way to track you and follow you? Yeah, yeah, we, we try to just post our work and other relevant work in these areas um, on Instagram or Twitter. It's just at Mike Ormsby. Okay. Um, so people can follow that. Uh, we have some, some cool relevant things that we either put out or, or re-put out from other people that are in this area. I think those are some good areas. And then if, if someone's specifically interested in body composition, um, there's a great resource that, that we've put out, which is through um, widely available through the, a company called The Great Courses. And it's a, a course called Changing Body Composition Through Diet and Exercise. And that's basically just the science uh, behind all of the things that we've talked about. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. I look forward to bringing you back on, Mike. And I look forward to catching up with you uh, sometime when I'm stateside or if you happen to be over in Europe. That would be awesome. I'd love um, to. Thanks so yeah. much. And uh, I hope you all stay safe and um, keep your bikes locked up absolutely yeah 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 uh that's a hidden story i'm not going to get into in the recording <laughs> folks um yeah so um uh, thank you all for listening if you want to catch up with um other related podcasts that we've referred to or just any of our podcasts on the we do science uh series that's at www.theiopn.com um as well as our science to practice videos on our new youtube channel and of course our uh, practice-focused advanced level training program, which is online in performance, nutrition, and some other exciting projects that we're going to be releasing soon, all at www.theiopn.com. I am Lauren Bannock. I look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon.